Well, this is one of those messages that um, I'm, I'm tickled to share with you this morning. It's, it's amazing when you, especially those of you who are teachers, you know that um, as you're preparing something during the week or maybe God lays something on your heart, you get to that point where you can't wait to share it. And this is one of those messages for me to share with you here this morning. Now, let me tell you why I'm so excited about it. It's because I want to take what you've always known about something and I basically want to turn it on its head. <laughs> I want to give you a different perspective to something that you're so familiar with. And so what I'd like for you to do is just listen as we kind of make our way through the first part of this message. Again, we're in this series called Kingdom Culture, which was born out of some things that God was showing the pastor some years, uh, last year at this time, and how God has used it to, to, to help us to create the culture that we believe that should be in the local church, and specifically this local church. And so basically what we're attempting to do with this whole series, we're in our seventh week of this series, and we still have more to go, just trust me. And, uh, and, and, but here's what we're trying to do. It's not only why do we exist, but how do we exist? Practically, what does it look like? So look at the introduction there on your outline. Because we are a collection of many people from various places, backgrounds, and stories, we believe culture making is essential for unifying our church family around a shared vision as we carry the message of Jesus to the world. How many of you have heard that for seven weeks now? All right, you're getting it, right? Okay, let's keep moving. We exist to love God, connect with others, and reach the world by creating a culture where, we've already seen this one, Jesus is our lead story, scripture and prayer are prime. It took five weeks to get through it. And then three, worship is a lifestyle. Worship, we kind of heard it this morning. Wesley alluded to it. We saw it here in the video. Worship is more than a song or lyric. It's more than what we do with our voices. It is also what we do with our hearts, our heads, and our hands as well. When we gather, the intention of our worship is to sing his praises, to celebrate what he is doing, to hear and respond to his word, and to give to his compassions. However, Worship is not just an hour that we gather each week. Worship is a lifestyle in which the songs we are singing and the message we are hearing on Sunday echoes throughout the week. Worship is magnifying Jesus everywhere all the time. It is literally expressing highest value to God through our lives in response to who he is and his love for us. I want you to turn to Romans chapter five, Romans chapter five. This past uh, uh, fall, we were started our series on Romans and we got to chapter six. We'll pick it up again next fall. And uh, it'll take us about three falls to get through Romans. But I wanna put those uh, sermons in the fall because I think it's important that we look at other stuff also throughout the year. But we have just really looked at these same verses I'm gonna share with you today just back in the fall. But I wanna take it from the, from the whole idea and the whole realm of worship, responding to God's love. So because God first loved us, the love we have for him, listen to this, is a reflection of his love for us. For us to reflect God's love, we must first attempt to understand who he is, then we must attempt to understand what he has done on our behalf. And there's not a greater passage in scripture 
than Romans 5 that tells us this. In Romans 5, the second part of verse 5 says this. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now think about this. The phrase in this verse, poured out, literally means lavishly. Lavishly. That means more than we are even capable of handling. He loves us that much. Now think about that. Think about the love that God has for us. Did you know that no one else is capable of loving us the way God loves us? Some of you are very blessed because you have people in your life that love you. Uh, for me, grandparents and parents and uh, children now, and then great, and then grandchildren. I started to say great grandchildren. I don't have those yet. Okay, but 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 what's interesting about the whole idea is that we have all these people in our lives that love us and express their love for us. But nothing compares for the love that God has for us, and I think we lose sight of that. It's uh, and and then here's what I want you to think about. Our response to God's love is not only a reflection for his love for us, listen, it's also our worship. Our response to his love is not just a reflection of how he's loving us, but it's also how we express our worship. And so therefore, that's what I want us to look at this morning. So look on your outline. Receiving Christ's love for us. Of course, that whole idea of salvation it's salvation. God's love for us can only truly be seen from the drop backdrop, look on your outline, of our condition of hopelessness. Our condition of hopelessness. Now, Romans 5, I want you to look at verse 1. Therefore, Paul was talking to those who've already come into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. What he's doing in chapter 5 is he's explaining what, where we were, our hopelessness, and what Christ has done about our hopelessness, okay? So he's explaining on that. So he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The key word there is justified. It literally means declared and made right when something has been wrong. It implies, listen to this, that the wrong is totally incapable of making itself right, now, who's wrong? We are. We are. And so the, he's, he's going to spend most of Romans chapter 5 explaining to us how we who are wrong have been made right in what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. So then he goes into great detail about the condition of our hopelessness. Look at that. Look at, look at your outline. We were without strength. Look at Romans 5, 6. It says, for when we were still without strength. Do you know what that literally means? It means helpless. It would describe a newborn child. You ever been around a newborn child? Only thing they know how to do is cry, and I don't mean to sound graphic, and poop. There is nothing else they can do. There is no, that, that will never be said in a First Baptist church anywhere, poop. Trust me. <laughs> Only here at Putnam, okay? But, but here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. We are without strength. We are helpless. We're just like a newborn infant. There's nothing we can do about anything. Totally powerless over to escape sin, bondage, and the enemy. Totally powerless. Listen, to please God. To please God. Powerless, helpless, without strength. 
Next, he describes us, our condition of hopelessness as we, are, we were ungodly. This is where we were before Christ. Romans 5, this part of uh, uh, verse 6, the second part, it says, however, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who are the ungodly? That's who we were before we came to Christ. And this morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is describing you. you. Listen, I hate to say it this way, but you're without strength. Your situation is hopeless. You are the one, uh, you're helpless. You're the one who is ungodly. It's a, it, the whole term ungodly means undeservable, but it also means unlovable. Unlovable in that condition. But you know what? Where unlovable was, the lovely came in Jesus Christ. Think about that. Next, our condition of hopelessness. We, are, we, are, we were sinners. We were sinners, the Bible says in verse eight, but God demonstrated his own one towards us in that while we were still sinners, in our present condition of being a sinner, he came to us. He not only came to us, he extended his love to us. The word sin literally means never nor capable of reaching God's standard. It, it, think of this, y'all. The God who hates sin loves the sinner. That doesn't even make sense when you think about it. The God who loves sin, who, who hates sin loves the sinner. Now let me tell you where the church is. We are the body of Christ. We're the representation of Christ and therefore our message should never come across as that we hate the sinner but that we hate the sin and we love the sinner. The exact same way Christ with us and so next we see, look on your outline, our condition of hopelessness, it gets worse. We were objects of God's wrath. Look at uh, verse nine. It says much more than, now Paul, let me tell you what he's doing with that phrase much more than. He's gonna say it several times. In that, he, it's almost like he's excited. It's almost like the way I introduced me coming to this sermon. I was excited to share this information with you. That's really what the much more than is talking about. It's like Paul is getting excited about all that Christ has done for us. He's shown us our condition of hopelessness and helplessness, and yet he's talking about that love that reached into that situation. And he says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, it could say by his sacrifice, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now, I want you to think about this. It should terrify us to think about this. Sinners, apart from Christ, are in the direct line of God's wrath. Think about that. That's where we were before Christ. That, that means this. There was a beeline of God's wrath that would have been poured out upon us. That's where we were before Christ, before we came on his terms. Now, here's what you need to understand. There's still a whole world out there that's in direct line of God's wrath. And we've been called to reach the world and tell them what he has done based on what we read in Romans chapter five. And so therefore, he goes on and it says, lastly, he says, our condition of hopelessness, we were God's enemy. Now, I don't know about you, but I came to know Christ when I was a young boy. 
And I look around here and I see people who have been saved as children, as teenagers, as adults, as middle-aged people, as those who are maybe on the other side of middle age. And, and when you look out there, you see we all have different testimonies and different ways in which we came to Christ. But here's the interesting thing. I don't think any of us ever thought that we were, that we were an enemy of God before we came to know him. But yet the Bible describes us before we come to know Jesus as an enemy of God. But none of us would have thought of ourselves as that. But you know what the Bible says? That's exactly what we were. We were an enemy of God. But here's the good news. We went from being an enemy to a friend of God. But let me tell you, the Bible calls it a much more intimate relationship. We went from being an enemy, listen, to be an adoptive, adoptive child of God. Think about that. Our condition of hopelessness. Next, receiving Christ's love for us. We saw that as salvation. Now, now let me tell you about the Bible. The Bible is full of contrast. Did you know that? Everywhere you look, there's contrast. Most of the time, when you see the word B-U-T in, a, in verses, guess what? You're being presented a contrast. And almost all the contrast that you read in Scripture, there, there's a major contrast between what's presented. Think about this, light and darkness. Would you say that's a pretty uh, big contrast? How about, how about this, sin and purity, Big contrast. How about this? I mean, it's all through scripture. There's all kinds of examples, but think of this. How about this? Our condition of hopelessness and his demonstration of love. That's a big contrast too, especially the way it's being presented here. So we see not only our condition of hopelessness, but look on your outline, his demonstration of love. First of all, he died for us. Romans 5, 6 says this, for when we were still without strength, we've already seen that, in due time, at God's appointed time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for us. It goes on, for scarcely, for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God, here's a contrast here, is talking about this death means a lot. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Can I tell you why we were so offensive to God before we came to know him? It's because we represented everything that God was not. Did you know that? We were sinners. We lived in rebellion. I mean, consciously, we would have never seen ourselves that way. But all of a sudden, that's the reason truth is so important. That's the reason God's word is so important because it shows us the contrast of where we are and where God is and where we need to be. And, and listen, that, that's the reason it's there. That's the reason the gospel is such a, a message of contrast because we will never come to God on his terms through Jesus Christ until we see the contrast between who we were or who we are and who he is. He goes on. Verse eight, but God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, what did he do? He died for us. Next, he justified us. That's a common word that Paul uses. Romans five, verse nine says, much more than there's an excitement again, having now been justified by his blood or by a sacrifice. 
That means we've been made right. We who live so wrong have been made right. Next, he saved us. Romans 5, verse 9 again says, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now, here's what you need to understand. How many of you have, how many of you have ever heard someone say something like this or ask the question, have you been saved? Have you ever thought about what that really means? You see, we automatically think, oh, that means we just need Jesus. No, the whole idea of salvation is this, that we are not given what we are due. You understand that, right? So when we say, are you saved? We think, oh yeah, salvation, yeah. We think of the good things, the good implications of that. But let's flip it on the other side. What are we being saved from? From those things that are due us, that he came and he took away by us through his son Jesus Christ, by us embracing the message of Jesus Christ and coming to God on his terms. That's when God slowly, and excuse me, moved those things aside and said, now this is who you are. You're an object, not of my wrath, but of my love, of my love. Can you even get that in your mind? It was his mercy and grace that was extended that took us off a path of of his wrath and put us on the path of his love. And so many times, we don't think of that when someone asks the question, are you saved? Saved from what? Well, saved from his wrath. Are you enjoying his love? Are you, I mean, think about that. It goes on, it says this, his demonstration of love. He reconciled us. Look at verse 10. For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, here it is. You can see the excitement. Having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What does it mean again? What was wrong has been made right. Think of this. At the moment we receive Christ's love on his terms, something miraculously happens. We change. At least our soul and spirit does. Our body, not yet. But we change. We become indwelt by the spirit of God. We become, listen, objects of God's love. That's what happens when we come to know Christ. Now, let's continue to look at this. Look on, look on your outline. Next, the Bible says in 1 John 4, 19, listen to this, we love because he first loved us. So what we're doing is we are literally responding to his love. How do we respond to his love? Through worship, worship. You see, so many times, I mean, think about this. What do we say many times? Where are you going? I'm going to worship. I'm going to worship, which implies what? I'm not there yet. I'm not in, I'm not, I'm going to worship. It's out there. I'm going to a destination. I'm going somewhere to do this. Do you realize how foreign that is to God's word? It is so foreign to think of our worship that way. Worship, look on your outline, is sacrificing our worldly allegiance and ambitions to God. Think of that. It is sacrificing our worldly allegiance and ambitions to God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Someone asked me one time, said, why is it that almost everything you preach on, you go to Romans 12, 1 and 2? How many of you have noticed that I do that a lot? 
Because this is the key. This is the key. If you were to say, what is the key to me living the life God desires me to live? Literally, what is the key? What, 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 what's the key? <laughs> this right here. This is it. This is the key. Listen to this. I beseech you, brother, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, I plead with you, I cry out to you, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, a sacrifice that is holy, that is acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's something you should do because of your response to him. It's reasonable that you do this. It is within reason that we respond the way we should respond and, and respond to the love that God has put into our lives. And he says, and don't be conformed to this world. Listen, here's what he's saying. If you're being conformed to the world, you're walking away from worship. You do understand that this terminology, Romans 12, 1 and 2, is, is the whole idea of worship. It's what you did in the temple. It's, it's, it's temple talk. <laughs> and so what you see there is this, that you present your body as a living, holy, it's your reasonable service. Don't be conformed to the world. You're not heading in the right, right direction if you're going that route. Let me tell you, we heard about our teenagers and what they're doing on Wednesday night. Do you know why that's so important? Because the world is screaming at them to conform to their sexuality. Screaming at them. And all of a sudden, you, you have pastors and, and student leaders that are standing in the gap for, for the word of God to, to raise it up. People giving testimonies, people coming before them for a whole month. They've been hearing about what God's word says about this. All because the world is screaming, be conformed. Let us squeeze you into the mold of what we think sexuality is all about. But he says, don't go that way. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know what we're literally doing? We are literally attempting, and the workers over there are literally attempting to, to bring something to mind that is not conforming to the world, but, be, but, but is bringing transformation into their lives. And the only thing that can do that, listen, is the word of God. The very thing that the world hates. Isn't it amazing that the truth of God's word is all about the love that I've talked about this morning. Do you realize that Romans chapter five is a central, I'm making up words again, is central, is central to what the whole message of the Bible is all about. And yet, it's a message of love, but the world looks at it and says, no, it's hate. And they want it silenced. You know why? Because it's contrary to the message they want to bring to the table. And it says this, what happens when you do that? You will prove what is that good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. Can I ask you something? How many of you have ever sensed that you were in the perfect will of God? There's no greater place to be. You feel so clean. You, feel, you almost feel innocent. You feel, it's amazing when I was a youth pastor, and I know that Jonathan's dealt with it, Neil dealt with it. We, do you realize we've had three pastors, student pastors in 27 years? 
That's a pretty good record. But now, granted, each of us could only handle nine years of it, but, but here's the... No, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. But, but, but here's what's interesting about that. Every time what, 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 was, what was there was we were, we were dealing with teenagers who had made some tough mistakes, terrible mistakes. And we tried to bring them back into the will of God. We try to get them to keep from listening to the message of the world and listen to the truth of God's word. Now, here's the key. If you look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, the key word here, and sometimes we overlook it because there's so many good words here. The key word here is offer. Look at it. What does he say? He said, offer yourself. Present your bodies. Offer that, okay? Notice this in the context or in the view of God's mercy. Listen, God takes the initiative in worship. God does not take us to to make the first, does not ask us to make the first move. You know why he doesn't ask us to do that? Because we're not even capable of doing it. Not even capable. The only reason we know that there is a love of God out there is because of what the Holy Spirit does in our lives and what he brings. He brings that to the table. God does not ask us to make the first move. He always makes the first move. He created us. He saved us. He forgave us. He blesses us. He protects us. Then notice what we are to do. We are to offer ourselves. That's worship language. Worship language. And it's a whole lot more than coming up here and singing a song. It's a whole lot more than standing there singing a song. Now, that may be part of it. We're called to, con- to worship together. We see that all through Scripture. But it doesn't end when you walk out these doors. But then, listen to this. We go from responding worship to practical worship. Now, let me, say, let me tell you this. When we respond in worship, it always leads to practical worship. Now, here's what I mean by that. Jesus, if this, I think this is on your outline. If it's not, you need to write it down. Luke 9, 23. How do we go from offering ourselves, responding to worship, to practically worshiping God daily? That's the key. That's the, that's the perception I'm trying to change for you here today. I want you to understand. Here it is right here. Then Jesus said to them all, Go ahead and put that up. There it is. You're you're good. If anyone desires or wishes to come after me or follow me, here it is. We got three things here. Let him deny himself. Deny himself. Does the world even come close to giving anybody that message? Everything that we hear is how much we deserve everything how we deserve to have it our way. Burger King messed it up for all of us. Actually, they had good marketing because that's been out for 20-some years, and I still know it. So anyway, but, but here's what you need to understand. It's not the whole idea of deserving. We didn't deserve the love of God. We didn't deserve that. But you know what? He extended it. He, he gave it to us. So, so let him deny himself... Take up his cross daily. Now, I'm ashamed to say this, but I've never shared, and I didn't think of it till this week. I've never shared the gospel with anyone that I use Luke 9, 23. 
I've always said, man, God loves you so much that he sent his only begotten son that if you'll believe in him, you won't perish, but you'll have everlasting life. And the way that he wants you to respond to this is to repent of your sins. Turn your life over to him. Turn from this life to the life that he wants for you. And y'all, that's a great message. But guess what? That's just the beginning Repentance is just the beginning. I, I don't know that I have ever followed it up with them praying and asking Jesus to come into their heart with saying, now here's what you need to understand. This needs to be the first verse you memorize. Luke 9, 23. You know why we don't say that all the time? It's because we don't want to shake them to the core of who they are. <laughs> because this is, this is tough language. You got to deny yourself. You know, I guarantee, I guarantee if you turn around and said that after you led someone to Christ and they said, okay, now, now here's, and you try to present, now here's the implications of what you just said. How many of us would sit there and think, really? I don't know about that. But think about that. Th this is real. This is what it looks like. This, this is practically living your worship. The first is responding in worship, but now we're practically living worship. Then Jesus said to them all, if anyone desires, wishes to come after me, to follow me, let him deny himself. And then number two, it doesn't get any better. Take up his cross daily. You mean to tell me, listen, first century people knew exactly what this meant. You mean I gotta execute myself every day? What does it say? It's exactly what it says. Do you realize that the word daily implies how the principle is to live, be lived out practically? When you, when you read uh, words that Paul uses many times in Scripture, when you read words like daily or when you read words like walk, it's all practical applications of how we are to live before God. It's practical applications of how we are to worship God in our daily lives. And he says, take up his cross. And then he says, and follow me. Continual obedience is what it means to follow Christ. Luke 9, 23, listen, is the invitation to follow Christ. These commands are not what was, in, what was required before salvation is granted, but is what our response should be to the salvation. It is the highest, listen, I believe Luke 9.23 is the highest calling of worship practically lived out daily. And listen to me. Every bit of this is intentionality. Every bit of this is waking up in the morning and saying, you know something? I have great ambitions for my life. I have great ambitions to do this and do that and all that. If God is not the author of that ambition, then you're not living a life of worship. But it is every day centering your focus on him. Every day crucifying yourself. How many of you know how potential, that, how, how, how devastating you are capable of being in your own life? Anybody? I'm perfectly aware of, of the devastation I can bring to my own life. And I'm here to tell you that, that, that so many times we treat it lightly. He says every day, it means practically living it out. You need to execute, execute those things that are contrary before me because if you're not doing that, you're not living before me in a heart of worship. You're not practically 
living out worship. Next, responding to God's love for us is worship. Worship is sacrificing our worldly allegiance and ambitions to God, but secondly, worship is focusing our attention on God. Now, let me ask you this. How do you focus your attention on God in worship? You gotta quiet your life. You gotta leave the clutter of the outside, outside the door. You gotta leave it there. Look at what he says in Matthew 6, 6. Jesus said these words. When you go, or excuse me, but you, when you pray, go into your room. When you've shut your door, pray to the Father who's in the secret place and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Here's what that literally means. When you go to a place where your focus is on God and your worship is before him, then here's what you're gonna see. There's certain things you're gonna ask for. There's certain things you're gonna ask him to do. All of a sudden, he's going to reward that because you're going to start seeing what was taking place in that secret place. You're going to start seeing it coming out in real life practically. When's the last time you prayed, God? Put someone in my life today that I can share the good news. When's the last time you prayed, God? Put someone in my life today that I can encourage. You know what's amazing is those things that we say in secret, how many of you sometimes are just blown away how it just practically lived out, lives out right there in front of you and you're sitting there like, wow. I mean, the first time you see it, it blows your mind. I asked this of God this morning. It was his perfect will. It was what I was offering. It was acceptable. It's something that he took. It's something that he consumed. It talks about the, the altar and him consuming what's there. And I laid it before him. And guess what? I'm seeing it play out today. Nothing more powerful than that. That's worship. That's practical worship. Next, responding to God's love for us is worship. Worship is expressing our affection to God. Jesus answered him. In Mark chapter 12, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love your Lord God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first commandment. Do you realize that that was initially presented in Deuteronomy chapter 6 where basically God was telling, telling parents to hand that down to your children? This needs to be a generational thing. This is not something that just stops with you. You spread that news. This is the greatest commandment of them all. You're to love your God with all your heart. It's a pure love. It's a love that's not hypocritical, but it's sincere. It's a love that's not defiled, but is pure and innocent. Max Lucado has written, we too easily open the door of our heart. How many of you recognize that? We too easily just open our door of our heart. Anger shows up, we open the door. Revenge needs a place to stay, we tell him to pull up a chair. Pity wants to have a party, so we show him the kitchen. Lust rings the bell, we change the bed sheets. With everything attacking our heart and fighting to get in, Jesus stands at the door and knocks. But understand this, he only wants in if he can have your heart to himself. He's not going to share it. God only responds to a pure, sincere, sincere, surrendered heart. Next, love God with all your soul. It's a passionate love. So we go from a pure love to a passionate love. God doesn't want your duty. 
He wants your desire. He doesn't want ritual and religion or rules and regulation. He wants a passionate relationship with us. God wants to be loved with our emotions, our feelings, our core being. He wants to be the object of our desires and affections, a passionate love that acts and responds. Next, you're to love God with all your mind, a perceptive love. Listen to this. Christianity is a faith that is reasonable and rational. Don't be afraid to have some doubts and ask questions. Your quest for the answers can actually deepen your faith. God wants you to love him by growing in knowledge of him and his word. Listen, I can't tell you how many times people say, Pastor, I got to talk to you. And they come in. And, and, and most of the time, I'm just going to be honest with you, over 50% of the time is people asking questions about God or they have questions about God or God's done something they don't understand. And you know what I tell them? It's okay that you don't understand. That's part of the growth process God wants with you. That's part of the relationship that he wants with you. And you let him work on you in that area. Next, love him with all your strength. It's a practical love. 1 John 3, 18, dear children, let us not only love with words or tongues, but also with actions. God wants us to love him with our gifts and our ability. He wants us, he wants more than our words of praise. He wants more than our heart and feelings. He wants us to love him in a way that can be demonstrated. Demonstrated. Next, worship is using our abilities. Can I tell you what worship does? It invades every area of our life. That's what it should do. Listen to this. Colossians 3.23. Again, we, got, we have language of worship here. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. I want to sum up our response to his love by something Oswald Chambers shared. Listen to this. Look here on the screen. If what we call love does not take us beyond ourselves... It's not really love. Did you know you could put the word worship there and get the same thing? If what we call worship does not take us beyond ourselves, it's not really worship. If we had the idea that love or worship is characterized as cautious, wise, and sensible and never taken to extremes where it's radical, then we have missed worship or love's true meaning. This may describe affection and it may bring us a warm feeling, but it's not a true and accurate description of love. Have you ever been driven to do something for God, not because you felt it was useful or your duty to do so or that there was anything in it for you, but simply because you love him? Have you ever realized that you can give things to God that are of value to him? Think about that. Or are you just sitting around daydreaming about the greatness of his redemption while neglecting the things you could be doing for him? That's your worship. Here's the application. Everyone worships something. Are you aware of that? It's in our DNA. We were created to worship something. Guess what it was intended to do? To worship God. What are you worshiping? Is it? Look on your outline. It is whatever you are giving your greatest allegiance and ambition to. It's whatever you're giving your greatest attention to. It's whatever you're giving your greatest affections to. It's whatever you're giving your greatest abilities to. Listen, that's what you're worshiping. In conclusion, worship is magnifying Jesus, making him large. 
We had prayer time up here on the stage before we started. The person that prayed said, Lord, let us make you famous today. That's magnifying him. Worship is magnifying Jesus, expressing highest value to God through our lives in response to who he is and his love for us. I want to close with this. I've got to hurry. Mary said this. I went through the Bible and I tried to find what, what's the greatest expression of worship. You know where I found? I found Mary. Listen to what she said. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior for he has guarded, regarded the lowly state of his maidservant for behold henceforth all generations will call me blessed for he who is mighty has done great things for me and, his, and holy is his name. Would you stand with me and pray with me this morning as we prepare for invitation? Father, we just come to you now and we thank you for your love and your goodness. And and Lord, help us to respond to that. Father, if we've learned anything here today, that we've learned that worship is not contained in a one-hour service. Father, it's a daily, it's a daily execution. Of our, of our will and our ambitions to, to align ourselves with who you are and what you desire and that perfect will, Father. And Lord, I just pray, Lord, that somehow we'll understand that that is our worship. It's not just in song. It's also in what we can do, what we can offer you of great value. Lord, help our lives be the, the lives that reflect great value to you, Father. Help us to make you famous before this lost world. Father, we just thank you for this time. Father, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you, I pray today will be the day they come to terms with who you are. Father, if there's someone who believes it's a church home you called them to be a part of, I pray that they'll be obedient to what you're calling them to. But Father, most of all, help us all to understand the true nature of worship. Thank you for what you're gonna do in Jesus' name, amen.